Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal, and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, you're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with that no-good-neck boyfriend. Spoiler, the answer is always yes. I'm your host, Clementine Ford. I'm a writer, a content creator, a mother, and now, rather excitedly, an earthquake survivor. On this podcast, though, I act as one thing and one thing only, your honorary Big Sister. Straight shooting, no words minced, tough love, big sis. Each week I'm joined by a guest to help me answer your questions. And if you'd like yours to be considered, you can email it to me on bigsisterhotline at gmail.com, where all anonymity is assured. Special shout out to my people on Patreon, whose support allows me to make a whole bunch of things, including this podcast. This episode is proudly sponsored by the good folks at Wild Secrets, purveyors of the finest selection of adult toys in all the land. And you can use my code CLEMFORD to get 20% off all full price purchases over $80. Say no to earthquakes and say yes to bed shakes with Wild Secrets. I'm joined this week by an historian and writer whose recently published memoir, All About Eve, delivers a stunning and beautifully crafted reflection through identity, transition, and what it means to live the questions. They are the co-founder of the Spilling the Tea Transgender Writing Collective, and they volunteer with Transgender Victoria. They are Dr. Eve Rees. Welcome. Hi, Clem. Thanks so much for having me. It is my absolute pleasure. Your book is so beautifully written. I, um, I've, I'm experiencing those feelings that I have with every wonderfully written book in that I, I feel blessed to be able to allow the poetry of it to wash over me and simultaneously incredibly envious <laughs> of you. <laughs> That's very nice to hear. I mean, you know, I've been envious of your writing many times in the past. So, you know, it goes both ways. That is very, very kind of you to say, um, but unnecessary. Uh, your book, All About Eve, just recently was uh, published by mm. Alan and Unwin. And what kind of struck me as I was thinking about the two of us is that we have, I mean, there are some very clear differences, obviously, but we have quite similar connections you and I. And I think maybe your experience in, you know, from going from the very starting point to having this book published might have been quite similar to mine in that we share a friend in Claire Wright, the brilliant historian, Claire Wright. Yeah, we do. Um, Claire, who is a colleague of mine at La Trobe University, um, has been such a core part of this journey. Um, You know, Claire is one of the few historians in Australia um, who is so good at engaging, you know, with the public sphere and making history accessible and is a marvellous communicator. And when I joined the history department of La Trobe a few years ago, Claire really took me under her wing and we started a podcast together and we've become really good mates. And it was Claire who really, um, you know, first encouraged me to start thinking about writing this book and hooked me up 
with her agent, who is also your agent, Jacinta. And that was sort of the route that led me to get a contract with Alan Unwin, who is also, of course, your publisher. So yeah, you're really correct to say we have followed this kind of similar trajectory of being, you know, supported and connected to a lot of the same people. I had a similar experience with Claire, not in that we were working together. I am the opposite of an historian. I have no research skills to that degree. Um, But Claire really championed me and set me up with a meeting with Jacinta, who is just obviously best agent in the world. Mm. Um, And I guess what I'm really touching on is the power of that. What, What can happen when you live your life in a way that is championing other people and the ripples that that can create? Because so much beauty can come from that and so many necessary stories can be told if people are just willing to, I guess, use all of the space that they have and expand it to other people, which is quite synchronistic in talking about how we as a society expand and recognise and understand the beauty of trans stories, which is what you write about so wonderfully in your book. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Claire was one of the first people I came out to, um, in my workplace of Latrobe, I was, you know, unsurprisingly pretty scared to come out as trans in a, in a big institution. And Claire um, was so wonderfully supportive. And that was, in a way, you know, the foundation of our friendship. We kind of really bonded over that. And, you know, she's told me that she um, found my ability to kind of honour who I was and be prepared to go with the chaos of that, you know, well into adulthood she found in that a sense of permission to kind of reevaluate her own life in many ways. Um, and, you know, and so that, that moment, that kind of connection I had with Claire was a really powerful early um, insight for me into how when you speak your own truth, you open up other space for other people to speak their truth and they feel empowered. And it does have this kind of ripple effect And then, of course, Claire went on to kind of lift me up and, you know, introduce me to so many people and really help further my career, Um, you know, in a way, in a kind of reciprocal exchange for the way in which I had kind of opened up new ideas and possibilities for her. And it's just, yeah, really been beautiful to kind of see us both kind of thrive and grow side by side over the last few years. I love that idea that what can be gleaned from and and the huge benefit, of course, that everyone has from being exposed to the beautiful complexity of trans narratives and trans stories is that, you know, rather than people being stuck in this very limited idea, which has been perpetuated by media over the years, which I want to talk to you about in a minute, that these stories are only for the people who they talk about. Actually, they're for everyone because all stories are for everyone. And what they tell us about ourselves and the way that we can live our lives is really profound and meaningful. Yeah, that's such an important point. I mean, I think so often um, the stories of trans people, like the stories of any kind of marginalised and oppressed group, yeah, they really often get pigeonholed as like just, you know, just for that community. And I've read a lot of trans memoirs that were clearly kind of published and marketed in a way that they're only sort of for the trans or more broadly the queer community. And It was really important to me not to write that kind of story because I so fervently believe that, you know, trans people, we're just humans like everyone else. And, you know, our story is kind of just a human story. And also trans people, because we're sort of positioned on the margins of, you know, what we might think of as kind of normative gender, um, you know, the conventional gender rules, we have so much insight and knowledge into how gender works. And of course, gender is relevant to every single human because we're all gendered. We all live under patriarchy. And so I think, you know, trans people really have so much to offer to cis people in helping them to kind of think through how gender shows up in our everyday lives, what it means for our bodies, our identities, our sense of selves. So um, it's, you know, I I love being read by trans people, but I also really love having um, cis people read my work and say that it changed their thinking because, um, you know, trans people have heard these ideas before that I'm talking about, but it's cis people who it often kind of blows their mind to learn, Mm. to think about gender in a different way. I can relate to that when I think about it in terms of 
who reads my work on feminism, you know, mm. when it's when I'm speaking to an audience of people who actually is not just women, obviously, it's anyone who has existed outside of the cishet male kind of um, conditioning of the mm. world. When they read my work and relate strongly to it, obviously that that's it's like saying like, isn't it? You know, you see, you feel seen and, and welcomed and connected to your immediate community, but you have to change the thinking and the, and the lives of people outside of those communities too and, and the rewards that you can get from seeing how, I mean, in, in terms of myself, when I have men write to me, particularly when they're quite blokish cis men and they confess that, you know, something I've written might have spoken to the little boy within them and how they have been, even cis men, obviously cis people are indoctrinated into gender as well. I mean, we're the... We're the ones who police it so hard um, that it's incredibly rewarding in a different way. And I guess, you know, thinking about the complexity of trans stories and the, the rich tapestry of trans stories, one of the things that was so fascinating to me, and I, and I would like to think that I'm someone who is quite, you know, well-versed in a lot of trans narratives. You know, I read trans writers. I, I, I listen to trans speakers. I, I have lots. I've got lots of trans friends. <laughs> um, you know, but it was interesting to me that you said that one, only one in 10 people in Australia claim mm. to can claim to know a trans person well, which is really shocking because, and the worst part about that was that, you know, you it was in the chapter where you were talking about media representations of trans lives, which of course, up until incredibly recently, has always been, you know, swinging wildly between tragedy or monstrosity. Um, and only recently in the last 10 years, we can say that there's been any kind of positive widespread representation of the joy that mm. can be lived in a trans life. Um, and one of the things that you wrote was that if only one in 10 people know a trans person, that includes closeted trans people, which until you were 30, unbeknownst to you, was yourself yeah completely I was one of those closeted trans people who because you know I'd grown up at a time where I didn't see any realistic or positive or you know complex trans representation being trans was literally unthinkable to me um you know I grew up in Newcastle in the early in the 90s and early 2000s it was a super like white, straight, you know, um, uh, kind of Aussie white bread culture. Um, you know, great beaches, not a lot of cultural diversity. And I think, you know, when I first sort of started to think of myself as trans, I really grappled with a sense of imposter syndrome because I thought, well, why didn't I know when I was younger? Like surely if I was really trans, I would have known when I was four or five years old and I would have been insisting upon that from that age. But the more I thought and read about it and the more I talked to other trans people, I realised that um, it's actually not that unusual or surprising that it took me so long because I grew up in a world where either I was told trans people didn't exist or they were absolutely disgusting, hideous freaks. Um, you know, one of the earliest representations of trans people I saw was in the Jim Carrey comedy, um, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, where, um, you know, people might remember that the kind of the climax of the comedy is um, Jim Carrey discovering he's kissed a trans woman and he like kind of, you know, convulsively vomits to kind of rid himself of this kind of disgusting contamination. And then he strips the trans woman in front of an audience of people and everyone else is similarly disgusted. So I'd seen that, you know, at the age of about six. So, of course, my childhood brain, you know, kids are smart. Kids are adaptive. Kids learn that they need to modify their behaviour to fit in so they can be loved and protected and safe. So, of mm. course, for my childhood brain, it was not even conceivable to think I might be one of those trans people because I knew at such a young age that to be trans was to be ostracized, was to be mocked, humiliated and rejected. So, you know, I just, I swallowed the script. I'd been told I swallowed the idea that I was a woman or a girl and then a woman. And I tried my damnedest to do that well, because that's what I'd been taught led to love and acceptance and safety. And of mm. course, through that time, 
you know, through my whole life, I did have this profound sense of kind of wrongness and unease with my body, um, which, you know, I now know is gender dysphoria. But for the longest time, I just thought that's what it meant to live in a body. And, you know, that unease manifested as eating disorders, as, you know, mental illness of various sorts. And then it really took until, you know, my late 20s when, you know, which was in the mid 2010s, when we sort of had this moment of exploding trans representation, it's often called the trans tipping point, where I suddenly, you know, saw real trans people like, you know, Laverne Cox on the cover of Time magazine and, um, and you know, the TV show Transparent. And I was reading trans novels and I thought, oh, oh, I can... I can kind of see myself in those stories. Does that mean that this like wrongness I've had all the time is not just normal, but it's actually this <laughs> thing called gender dysphoria? And, mm. you know, that's that's why trans representation is so important. And that's one of the big reasons I wrote my book, because, you know, you can't be what you can't see if you're not mm. told that being trans and being trans and human and loved and having a rich and complex, joyful life is possible you know, it doesn't become really conceivable for almost anyone. Mm. It's interesting because I also watched Ace Ventura Pet Detective back in the 90s. And I, I wouldn't say that I've seen it, you know, for probably not for 25 years. It's not mm. it's not a movie that I typically <laughs> would go to put in the, uh-huh. you know, to put on as a bit of light entertainment. But like you, I, I hadn't forgotten that scene at the end, but I... I'd somehow compartmentalized it in my mind to it just being something that existed in the nineties, mm. which, you know, to an extent I don't, I would hope that a woman, uh, that a film like that wouldn't be made today. I can't, I can't see how it could be gotten away with, which is not to say of course that people wouldn't still line up to grotesquely laugh at it, but reading your recount of it, in the chapter where you talk about media representations of trans people and and the ways in which, of course, as a young child, you wouldn't be attuned to recognising that in yourself because of what that would mean mm. or what you were told that should mean, rereading that scene struck me in a very visceral way just how, just exactly how monstrous it is. Something I really related strongly to reading the early parts of your book were the sense of disease that you felt in your body. And I can imagine that this is something as well that complicates the ability for trans people to recognize their transness and and understand exactly what their gender identity is. That if you are being, if you are, if you're assigned female at birth and you're being socialized and conditioned to be a girl in the world, regardless of whether or not you actually are a girl, then your disease is expected. What girl feels comfortable in their body? So patriarchy complicates these things even further, doesn't it? That is something that I think is put on, that is expected because we expect everyone except for cishet men to be uncomfortable in their bodies to some degree because that is how patriarchy and hierarchies of power maintain themselves. Yeah, it was, um, it is really complicated. And, you know, when I said I thought, you know, being uncomfortable in my body was normal, you know, in a way that's, I'm, you know, was thinking what you just said, that I thought it was normal for women, you know, that women were taught under patriarchy to hate their bodies. And, you know, so when I was um, a teenager, I had, you know, quite a severe eating disorder and, you know, kind of associated with compulsive exercise, which was really around this idea to have an incredibly thin angular body. Now, looking back, I can really see that as a sign of my transness. You know, there's lots of research to show that Um, trans teens, trans kids have incredibly high rates of eating disorder that often kick in around puberty because puberty is when our bodies develop our secondary sex characteristics that we often find so uncomfortable. So, you know, as a kid, like, you know, boys and girls have pretty similar bodies. You know, we could all just be a bit androgynous, but all of a sudden when I developed breasts and hips and my period, I was kind of confronted with this visceral evidence of my womanness and I found that really 
uncomfortable and I wanted to, you know, I, I now see that I kind of wanted to be thin and angular because I found my womanness so difficult and confronting. But of course, at the time, like it just seemed like a typical teenage girl thing to do. I mean, this was like in 2002, this was like peak, you know, Paris Hilton, Kira Knightley, uber, uber skinny kind of, you know. Very low cut jeans. Yeah, very low cut jeans, you know, like lots of midriff, like being uber, uber thin was the fashion. So, you know, at the time it just seemed like, oh, this is just like another like angsty white teenage girl wanting to be as skinny as possible. Um, and, and, and the desire to be thin is about patriarchy, not about transness. So it, it really is a kind of complicated terrain where it can be really hard to unpick, you know, the two, because even though I'm not a woman, I'm still was socialized as a woman and I still live under patriarchy. So of course my relationship to my body is influenced by that. And, um, you know, that's kind of yet another reason it took me so long to kind of recognize my transness for what it was. And, and I suppose it was something I wanted to really draw out in my book, the kind of the messiness that so often actually dogs trans experience. You know, I think we're often, again, with these really simplistic media representations, we're often sold this story of transness that the trans person knows who they are from when they're a kid. There's no ambiguity. Like they just, you know, if they're assigned female, they're like a total tomboy. They refuse to wear dresses and they might become, you know, a really butch kind of presenting person and then try and get surgery and hormones at the earliest opportunity. And what, like that story is true for some people, but not for everyone. And what it means is that for people like me, who's, you know, we don't conform to that script, we really start to kind of doubt our own experience and kind of gaslight ourselves and have all this imposter syndrome. Um, think, you know, if I was really trans, I would have known earlier and, and, and been more sure of myself. When, of course, the reality is, like, we live in a world that, like, hates trans people. So it's, you know, that it tells us it's, you know, it's a monstrous... Um, um, in unhuman thing. So of course, it's not surprising that it would be a kind of complicated, convoluted process to recognize that in yourself. Mm. There's something as well, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this too, mm. that that very strict, I mean, reinforcing the idea that if you if you're really, quote, air quotes around really, if you're mm. really trans, then you would know from a young age because, of course, you would be mimicking the binary in in your – it's sort of the idea that the binary exists whether or not you're trans or cis kind of needs to be dismantled, doesn't it? Because obviously trans girls are not necessarily – always very, very feminine and trans boys are not necessarily always very tomboyish and non-binary children may float between either mm. expression or, or accepted expression of gender or they may be very strongly one or the other. Yeah, completely. I mean, this, yeah, this kind of born in the wrong body, know when you're a kid, feel really certain about it kind of trans narrative um, you know, it's really influenced by medical understandings of transness, which are really wedded to the gender binary, like the idea that, you know, if someone like me is not not the girl I was assigned, then I must be a boy and I must express that boyness in really, really normative ways through being like, you know, like playing with trucks and then later, you know, wanting to be really mask and built and, you know, monosyllabic. And... Um, you know, this this idea, again, it's true for some people, but it's really, um, it can do a lot of harm because as you sort of gesture towards, it erases all the many, many people who are trans and whose genders don't fit into the categories of man or women. Of course, you know, there are trans men and trans women who very much identify with, with those identities. But there's this whole other universe of people who are non-binary, genderqueer, transmasculine, transfeminine, and their identities and their gendered expression is just, you know, it can be fluid, it's complex, and they don't fit into this, you know, very narrow gender binary, which concerningly the medical profession still really kind of enforces when they're dealing with trans bodies because, you know, it's still... Um, 
you know, very much the case in Australia that even though being trans is no longer considered a disease, which, you know, is a plus, you still need to get a formal diagnosis of gender dysphoria if you, as a trans person, want to obtain any, like, medical gender-affirming treatments like hormones or surgery. And to get that diagnosis, you really have to um, kind of squash what, you know, will often be a really complex um, story into these really neat binary script of saying of, you know, saying that you kind of essentially want to look like, you know, or want to exist as the gender opposite to that you were assigned at birth. So, um, you know, it means for someone like me, when I went to get my diagnosis, you know, I really kind of had to spin a story where I had to sort of say, oh, yes, you know, I did I did play with trucks as a kid and wanted to be, you know, like my brother and wanted to be with the boys and kind of, you know, um, edit out, you know, the fact that I also like to play with Barbies and do dress ups and wear pink and all those um those kind of mm. more complex signs of gender expression I had. So it's, um, you know, this, this binary still is incredibly powerful um, in how it's used to police trans lives. And I think it's important to remember that this, that this binary kind of serves no one except patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, patriarchy is invested in the gender binary because it creates this kind of neat assumption where the world is divided into men and women and everything masculine is better than everything feminine. And, you know, so trans people can be invested in challenging the gender binary, but cisgender people can also as well because um, they're equally harmed by it. You know, cis women are harmed by the idea that they are, you know, they represent the kind of the complete opposite of the masculine, which is superior. And then, of course, cis men are also harmed by it because they're boxed into this really narrow idea of what the masculine must be and they're forced to also kind of distort and repress themselves. So, Mm. you know, binary is just no good altogether. We need to get rid of it. 100% agree on that. Um, It's it's really, you know, particularly from a patriarchal kind of perspective, which is obviously what I'm more more well-versed in, it's so sad that this obviously – dismantling the gender binary is not the only thing that we need to do to dismantle patriarchy but it's a pretty huge part of it and this one thing that would certainly help to liberate a lot of people including the cis men who feel like patriarchy might represent them best the one thing that we could do is still so terrifying to so many people but I suppose that also comes back to the fact that the representation has been so poor so limited and so um, intimidating, you know, that that way it's like this way lies monsters, you know, yeah. but when you get there, I mean, you reference Alison Evans, Alison Evans, the non-binary um, young adult novelist, their book, Gender Euphoria, which kind of explores gender expression through a mystical, magical, adventurous kind of lens. It's really it's really troubling that we're we're at this point in history where we we've apparently progressed so far and people are still resisting opening themselves up to joy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, um I I totally agree. I, and I think there's maybe two things going on. I think there's certainly that you know things are getting better, but still the trans representation we have is still so much around, you know, trauma. It's a lot of it is trauma porn that focuses on the difficult aspect of being trans, the gender dysphoria, the stigma, the transphobia, being outsider. So of course, you know, being trans, living outside the gender binary is still a kind of stigmatized, fearful thing with negative connotations, which, you know, a lot of people are afraid of. But I also think there's this element that, cisgender people who have really rigorously followed the rules of the gender binary um, in their own lives and really, you know, like become their own gender police. I think they Mm. find the idea of non-binary people and collapsing the gender binary quite threatening and confronting because it's sort of, it's suggesting that the rules that they have lived their lives by and rules that may have caused pain um, mm. need not apply, that they didn't need mm. to do that. Like they didn't need to kind of 
you know, contort themselves into these boxes. And that's a really confronting and scary thing. I mean, I have so much empathy for that because, you know, I, I resent that I spent years trying to be a good woman and, and, you know, do all the things I was meant to do. And, you know, I feel resentful of that. I, I wish I'd learned about these ideas earlier. But I, yeah, so I think for some people discovering these ideas when it so goes against the gender rules they have lived by and thought they had to live by, that their response can kind of be a bit fear-based and defensive and say, well, no, no, that, that can't be true because, because I've done this and therefore this must be the way things have to be. Mm. It's like any, any group of, um, you know, it's like, women who are maybe in their 60s or 70s who might be guilty of saying, well, I had to deal with this when I was a young mother, so therefore it should never be easy for you. Or I remember Lindy West's wonderful episode of This American Life where she confronted one of her trolls who had, you know, sent her horrific, um, harassed her horribly online and it turned out that he was a fellow fat person who was really confronted by the fact that she lived joyfully in her own body and he hadn't yet understood how that could be possible for him. So I guess on that note, I really want to talk about trans joy and I want to talk about the political power of living joyfully in your body and in yourself. In the first part of the book, you write about how you're, you're beginning, well, you, you're, you're so beautifully kind of touch on the fact that you can't isolate a beginning understanding of your transness because it it could be this it could be that it could be a a whole collection of different things but one of the circumstances that you write about is being in Canada and buying some legal THC (laughs) capsules there and going on a you know taking a few and getting a little bit nicely stoned which you had never really been before and suddenly in you know that kind of wash of you call it the golden glow that goes through your body when you're a bit stoned being becoming very aware of your body in this way that seemed as I was reading it to bring you joy yeah yeah I mean I think um as you've said like I have many kind of moments of trans beginning but that was a particularly um glorious one that made me feel incredibly free in my body and prompted this moment of clarity the next morning, which was, you know, I woke up after being a bit stoned with this sentence in my mind that was, you know, wearing women's clothes is drag. You're not really a woman. And, you know, I I suppose if someone had told me, um, you know, that I was going to be trans, I might have assumed or discover I was going to be trans. I might have assumed that would be a moment of kind of fear and consternation. Thinking, Oh, no, I've got to like become part of this marginalized group and my life's going to be really hard. But actually, that moment of clarity the morning after my THC adventures was a moment of such immense joy of real gender euphoria. It was this real sense of, ah. Oh, now I get it. Now I understand why I felt so wrong in my body all these years. And I don't have to keep living like this. There's another way. I had this real sense of doors opening, this sort of sense that I, you know, that I realized that woman had been a kind of a character I'd been kind of miscast into. And I didn't have to do it anymore. I could say no. Like I could walk off the stage and say, sorry, there's been a mistake. Not actually a woman going to do my own, you know, um, casting from now on and be who I really am. And, you know, that was my first probably glimpse of what trans people call gender euphoria of feeling um, incredibly good in our body. And, you know, but there's been so many other moments since then. Um, you know, it's, it's really true that what we don't talk about enough is that closeted trans lives are often a bit miserable because we're repressing this huge part of who we really are and putting so much energy into hiding ourselves and you know trying to you know follow a script of of someone else and there's just this enormous liberation in letting that go and saying no actually actually you know i'm not gonna i'm not gonna play that role anymore Mm. and so even though being trans is 
challenging because we live in a, a world that is incredibly transphobic still. It also, for me at least, and I think for many people I know, is just accompanied by this extraordinary sense of lightness and freedom and um, and kind of um, sense of being impressed with oneself, really, like of having the guts to finally do this. Because, you know, I was such, well, I am still such a rule follower and, you know, always want to be the kind of person who ticks all the boxes and gets the gold star and the A plus at the end and, you know, pat on the head from the teacher. So for me to kind of have the courage to say, no, I'm, I'm, I refuse, I'm not going to do that, um, was the scariest thing I've ever done, but was also the thing I'm most proud of in my life. And mm. that pride in myself, I kind of carry around every day now as a sense of, um, I suppose, it's a sense of kind of dignity and a sense of being able to trust myself in a way I never had before. Mm. That's such a beautiful point to segue to the questions are you ready yeah (laughs) please note my disclaimer that neither eve nor i are medical doctors although eve is a doctor (laughs) (laughs) lawyers or professionally trained counselors we're just two humans with a little thing called life experience and a fondness for poetry Questioning asks, honestly, I'm nervous to even send this email. I don't want to hurt anyone or imply anything about anyone except for myself. I'm trying to work out the best way to ask this because I absolutely do not want to imply that my experience is representative of all assigned male at birth non-binary people. The too long didn't read of it is, I'm not sure if I'm non-binary or I just don't care about my own pronouns. Recently, I've been questioning whether I might be non-binary. This obviously isn't problematic in and of itself, but I'm trying to be self-critical of my thought process. I was raised male with parents who were very supportive of me in every way. I've never felt that I was particularly masculine and always felt like I didn't fit in around blokey blokes. What I do know is that my heart feels bigger when I hear content from people such as Liv Hewson and Scout Boxall. The crux of this issue is that I don't care at all what pronouns are used to refer to me, and I don't feel that gender really affects me at all. In my case, and I want to make it clear that I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone else, I'm very aware that this comes at least in part from my white, cis, questioning mark, male privilege. I've never had to worry about gender due to my socialisation, and I'm aware that this is a huge source of privilege. Do you have any thoughts about how to navigate this? Thanks in advance. That's a really um, beautiful and thoughtful question. I mean, Mm. you know... Firstly, good on you for being so self-aware of the way in which um, being socialised as a cis male means gender isn't, you know, necessarily such a source of kind of angst and torment as it is, you know, as we've been discussing for many cis women um, and um, a lot of trans and non-binary people. But I, I suppose I'd also kind of encourage this questioner to maybe cut themselves a bit of slack um, and acknowledge how brave it is to be asking these questions and to say that if you're asking yourself extensively over a period of time, if you're non-binary or trans, I think there's a pretty high likelihood that you might be (laughs) because, you know, cis people don't, you know, lie in bed at night awake wondering if they're trans. Like they they know they're cis. I think if you're asking yourself these questions and really resonating with, you know, um, non-binary or trans content that other creators are putting out there, you know, it might be the case that you are. I mean, no one can define that for yourself except you. Um, You know, this is is something really important to me that even though, you know, the medical profession still has this diagnosis of gender dysphoria and transness, I think it's really important to insist that, all being non-binary or trans is is having a disconnect between the gender you are assigned based on your biological sex and the gender you actually are the gender you feel yourself to be and that is such an internal and private feeling 
that each individual is the only person who can make that call for themselves. No one Mm. else has any idea, I would say. I don't actually think it's relevant, you know, what your gender expression looks like, you know, if you are really gender conforming or not, if you really can care about pronouns or not. The only thing that really matters is whether you feel that disconnect within yourself or not. And if you feel you're non-binary, you probably are. Um, and you can kind of do with that what you will. I mean, it can, you know, for some non-binary people, it's not really a big deal. Like they don't really care about, you know, coming out or changing their pronouns. And that's, that's cool. And, but then for other people like myself, you know, it was huge. I changed my pronouns. I changed my name. I changed everything about my life. Um, but that's, that's just part of the wonderful diversity of non-binary and trans experience. So, You know, I suppose I just encourage the questioner to be kind to yourself, be gentle, keep asking the questions, acknowledge the bravery and the integrity of what you're Mm. doing and listen to your own gut and kind of try and ignore all the all the white noise and everything else. Such a beautiful, sensitive answer to, as you said, a very um, self-aware question. I obviously, disclaimer, I'm coming at this from the perspective of someone who is cis, so I can't at all speak to the the trans experience of this and and nor would I attempt to. But in terms of the understanding of, or in terms of the acknowledgement that the questioner is is making of their perceived cis maleness, whether or not that is actually what they are, I wonder if there is something at play as well in... um, you know, they acknowledge that they have had a lot of privilege in their life and there's a sense of that kind of, you know, you know what you write about in your book, Eve, of if you're not aware of it early on, then are you, how can you claim it? Or, um, you know, the imposter syndrome that I can imagine that for someone who has been socialised as a cis man, there is what there there might be a self um a self-sabotaging voice inside that comes from transphobia and also comes from patriarchy that says Mm. well who are you to reject this power that you have yeah yeah i think that's such a such a good point that um you know if if you're born into and socialized what we're seen as the apex of Mm. you know of gender being a, a cis a cis white man yeah, there are so many really noisy messages saying, you know, you've hit the jackpot. Why would you give that up? Mm. And I think it's important to point out that, you know, there are real consequences to giving up cis privilege. Um, you know, I had no idea how much cis privilege was useful in my life or, you know, smoothed out my life mm. until I lost it. And it was really confronting for me to feel like, you know, I was the same person I always was, but because I was now trans, I was suddenly treated differently and, you know, experienced transphobia and all these things. And, you know, that was quite in a way embarrassing for me because it made me realize how naive I had been about my privilege beforehand. And, but there, but it was also an actually really valuable, I suppose, eye-opening education because it gave me a much improved kind of embodied awareness of how privilege and structural oppression works on an embodied level. And I think it gave me much more empathy with other oppressed peoples. Um, You know, I'm still very ignorant because I don't share their embodied experience, but I am much more attuned to and empathetic towards disabled people and people of colour and First Nations people and the kind of microaggressions they live with daily um, because I now experience microaggressions as well in a way Mm. I really hadn't before. So I think, you know, it is important to acknowledge that this privilege is real and giving it up is scary, Mm. but you know, it, it comes with pain, but it also comes with immense gifts of, you know, insight and empathy. Mm. I'm curious as well about this, Uh, you know in terms of stepping away from power and stepping into power however you know illusory it might be however much of an illusion it might be in your book 
you write there's a line that I um I dog eared the page on it. You write about um being in a cafe and have you have recently become aware of your transness and the fact that you're you are not a woman and you see a a grizzled old boomer, you know, the apex, as you said, of cis white male privilege, wearing a Rolex. You say the type of man who's always known himself to be the protagonist of every story, the loudest voice in the in every room, the type of man I resent and fear and obey, which of course is the power that patriarchy has over us. But my uh, some of the conversations that I've had with trans men and with non-binary trans mask people who have previously been feminist or who are still feminist obviously but who will say of themselves I was socialized as a girl and I have a feminist understanding of what it means to be seen as a girl in the world that there was a conflict inside about what it meant to recognize that actually they were either men or they were non-binary trans mask people who were stepping into a system that they also hated yeah, it was so, so confronting for me, um, that exact issue. And I, one of the hardest things I really had to grapple with that I'd, you know, been really raised in this kind of, I suppose like girl power kind of 90s feminism of like, yay, you're a girl. I love how you, you called it, a, you called it a, a pallid form of feminism, yeah. which I thought was such a good way of putting it. It was, it was pretty pallid um, because it was just that idea of, you know, girls are awesome girls can do everything that boys can do and it was you know it was pretty blind to a lot of bigger structural issues um but that was really the dogma i'd been raised in so i'd sort of been really trained to i suppose you know embrace my girlness or my womanness and want to use that um to kind of show that women and girls could be equal to men and do everything they could do. I suppose it was sort of in a way similar to a bit of a girl boss feminism, like that, you know, Mm. women can be CEOs too, which, you know, is obviously not a feminism I subscribe to Yay, patriarchy solved. (laughs) I know. But I, so to kind of, basically I'd been, you know, trained to think that, you know, you don't want to, emulate men you want to kind of show that you can break the glass ceiling with your big shoulder pads as a kind of high femme girl boss um which you know Mm. side side bracket is perhaps a form of emulating men anyway but I'd been really told to sort of you know that you want to be a woman feminist so to kind of see in myself this hunger for masculinity to want to look male be read as male and um inhabit that in the world was enormously confronting um i really felt for a very long time that this was just internalized misogyny that i'd been you know i'd been taught to hate the feminine parts of myself the woman in myself and you know that my brain had kind of convinced itself that this was the out just to become a man and to kind of win in team patriarchy and this was another huge part of my imposter syndrome that it didn't that it felt, I suppose, like a betrayal of my feminism to want to, you know, affirm my gender to become more masculine. And it took me, you know, a really long time and a lot of conversations with other non-binary and transmasculine people to realise, you know, that that's actually not the case. That A, you know, being a transmasculine person or a trans man or a non-binary person is not the same as being a cis man. Like, you don't have the same privileges um and entitlements you know you've still been socialized as a woman so you're never going to lose that awareness of what it like what it feels like to be in a woman's body and to live under patriarchy in that sense so you always will have a profoundly different subject position to a cis man Mm. and also i suppose what i've been thinking of a lot recently is the way in which i suppose trans masculinity is can be a sort of, I mean, a form of redemption for for masculinity generally, you know, in a world where we're kind of grappling Mm. with toxic masculinity and it's causing so much harm in so many contexts that I think more and more transmasculine people who really get, you know, misogyny and patriarchy because they've lived in female socialised bodies can provide examples of what it means to be manly and masculine in ways that are beautiful and strong 
but without being misogynist, without being toxic, without kind of refuting the feminine and the incredible glory mm. that all that represents. So, I mean, this is an idea that I'm kind of just developing and it's something I'm keen to uh, discuss further. But I now, I suppose, see trans masculinity not as a betrayal of feminism, but as a core part in the feminist mm. project of dismantling patriarchy because it's a route, it's an avenue to offer alternative, healthier models of masculinity, which we all, of course, desperately need. Absolutely. And just to be very clear, I was not at all suggesting that trans masculinity was a rejection of feminism. But it is Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. But we, yeah. <laughs> just, but, but, just so no one misinterprets that at all. <laughs> no, but, of course. But, it's a, but by the same token as well, this person asking this question, um, I, I really liked what you said about if you're lying awake at night asking yourself this question, then it's, there's probably some truth to it um, because cis people generally don't lie awake unless it's an intellectual curiosity. Could I be? But if you're r- routinely asking that question and feeling that way, then there's probably something more going on. By the same token, there is something really expansive to be had in people who've been understood by the world to be cis men even when they're not Mm. stepping outside of that and exhibiting that kind of of bravery all trans experiences are brave and i'm i imagine that they are brave in many similar ways and some in and in some ways they are unique exhibiting that kind of unique braveness bravery to stand before the world and say actually I'm not that I'm this and this is a different way to be and this is how we can continually expand what our understanding of humanity is and what our understanding of a human expression of life is and as you quote you know the German poet Rilke Rilke is that how you say it Rilke yeah Rilke yeah Yeah. as you quote Rilke you know to live the questions rather than rather than searching always for the answers Mm. to live the questions yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really a line I live by and have tattooed on my wrist. And I, I mean, I, on that point, I think it's really um, essential to point out, I suppose, the kind of the particular bravery of um, assigned male people coming out as non-binary or trans-feminine or, you know, any iteration of being not cis. That, you know, people who are read as male by the world who exhibit feminine gender expression are incredibly heavily policed and experience probably the most intense transphobia. You know, someone like me, who, uh, you know, a trans mask person, I can walk down the street and not be harassed because I'm just kind of read as like an androgynous person, a kind of, you know, maybe like a butch person. People don't really register me, but, mm. you know, people who are perceived as men who wear jewellery or makeup or skirts, um, they that's a really brave thing to do because you know the combination of misogyny and homophobia and transphobia i mean that any kind of femininity attached to what we think of as a male body is Mm. so um heavily policed and shamed and you know can lead to really you know violent um repercussions so to transgress, you know, perceived maleness in that way is is its own special class of bravery. And I take my hat off to all those people who do that because I haven't had to do that myself. Well, as you said, it's a threat to what could be. Oh, oh sorry. It's a, threat, it's a threat to what is that promises what could be. Yeah, because every, every man who's, you know, made himself smaller by repressing his mm. emotions and repressing his feminine side and being really, you know, mask and muscly. For every man like that who was, um, you know, he is threatened by seeing men who refuse to do that, men who, whether they're cis or not, display their femininity. femininity. Um, that's a huge threat to all the men who have repressed themselves. And that threat, you know often can lead to you know violence or hostility or aggression because you know we're poor silly humans who when we feel threatened or afraid we Mm. often react with violence Mm. i just want to touch on one last thing that you actually write about in the first few pages of your book um 
and it's a it's a concept or a phrase that I have understood but have only recently been had had seen it put into words and it's not anything like super deep or anything like that but you wrote about the first time you tweeted out to the world I am trans and it was in response to um you know some terrible transphobia that was being propagated by the right-wing media the daily telegraph and then you reference saying something about dealing with the vulnerability hangover (laughs) and I read that and I was and I was like I'm familiar with the the idea of what that is but I've never until recently really had people put that into words the vulnerability hangover and I wanted to just talk a little bit about that because you know for anyone listening who may not know what that means I guess the idea is that when you are open and you invite people into something into share something that is very deeply personal to you that you end up having that shame afterwards you reach you sort of fall into the shame spiral and I and I experience vulnerability hangovers all the time in fact I was talking to my friend Alice Robinson who's a wonderful writer she's been on the podcast a number uh, a couple of times already um I was telling her last night about uh, Eve wrote in their book about the vulnerability hangover and and I'm really interested in that concept and she was like, I don't know what that means. And I explained it to her and she said, oh, that's my life every day. <laughs> Just a hangover of vulnerability. So what is it about, what is the power that comes from being vulnerable in this way? And how can we, how can we resist that urge to fall into the shame spiral of it? It's a great question. Um, I should say first that, that the phrase vulnerability hangover um, comes from Brene Brown who many people may have heard of, you know, as one of the world's leading researchers on on shame and vulnerability. Um, and, you know, I've read a lot of her work and been pretty influenced by her ideas. And I think she she coined this term, the vulnerability hangover, to talk about um, the very first TED talk she gave, the one that went viral, where she kind of announced her own story. You know, she'd been an academic researcher to that date, then, obvious, then in the TED talk kind of put her own story on the line the first time. And, you know, it really resonated and it made her famous. But for the next week, she said she had a vulnerability hangover where she felt so ashamed of making herself vulnerable and could barely leave Mm. the house. Mm. And I think many of my thoughts on vulnerability, again, are indebted to Brene Brown, that I think we're taught to see at as shameful and exposing because we're sold this lie that being invulnerable is you know gives us armor gives us protection in life and then if we take that armor away and show who we really are show our fears and our messy underside you know we'll just get um abandoned or you know stabbed in our kind of vulnerable parts and i think that you know that fear never goes away like i still get vulnerability hangovers every day i'll probably get one after recording this podcast Um, (laughs) great um but what i've realized and that's just our lizard brain i think Mm. like being really you know trying to keep us safe like you know Mm. in the kind of clumsy ways it knows how but the truth is you know vulnerability is is the kind of key ingredient for a meaningful connected happy life because vulnerability is the route to connection you know i've formed the most powerful relationships of my life since coming out as trans because you know as I mentioned at the start when I was talking about my friendship with Claire saying who I was to other people being vulnerable created space for them to be vulnerable with me and say who they really were and to connect over that Mm. um you know and just since my book has come out I've had so many wonderful you know emails and dms from readers who've you know, thanked me for my vulnerability because it's enabled them to see parts of themselves or to, you know, feel affirmed in their own transness. And, you know, that is incredibly meaningful and rewarding as well. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's kind of like anything in life that you need to, you need to feel the fear. You need to take a risk to get to the really juicy, good, Mm. you know, meaty feelings of life. Um, And it's, it's scary, but it's also pretty fail safe because of course there'll always be haters, but you know, what I've learned is that people who mock you for being vulnerable and brave, they are not people worth respecting. They're not people worth your time. 
So being vulnerable is actually really, really good screening technique of who you want in your life or not. You know, the good people, the loving people, the people with integrity, they will always celebrate and reward vulnerability and everyone else you can just forget about. Mm. Yeah, that resonates very strongly with me. And, you know, I, I experience vulnerability hangovers all the time, particularly because a lot of the work that I do now, you know, and I had to kind of start doing this during the pandemic because everyone's work was shut down. So I was like, shit, how am I going to make my rent each week? I'm going to have to pivot wildly and become a content creator, um, which has been enormously rewarding because, as you said, you end up being invited to share people's private personal stories and they tell you how your work has impacted their life. What an, what an incredible privilege that is. But there are times even now when I you know, feel afterwards like, oh, maybe I was a little bit too open there. Maybe I shared a little bit too much of my feelings. And it's, and it's not so much for me, it's not so much that I feel ashamed of having been vulnerable. It's the fear that other people will think that the vulnerability is a pretense does that make sense? Um, and so you sort of feel like, or have you have you been, I guess it's all that gaslighting that you kind of experienced throughout your life as well, where you're like, did I take that the wrong way? Am I being too sensitive? Am I being too, because vulnerability is something that has been stamped out of all of us because we need people to not be vulnerable in order to maintain systems of oppression. We need them to not question them and not, not show human need. Um, but one of the things that I've been reflecting on recently is how you you cannot be a an activist or a fighter or anyone who really who is even if you don't consider yourself those things anyone who is trying to change the world in some way whether or not it's just your small part of it or whether or not it's it's a bigger portion of it change it for the better unless you temper that kind of hard exterior with the soft underbelly you have to have those two things in place. Otherwise you kind of forget what the point of it all is. Mm. And totally. And I do, you know, it's, it is really important to balance them. Like it's exhausting to be vulnerable all the time. And I think the point you made about social media is really important and relevant because, you know, there is, um, you know, for people like us writing, trying to build an audience, put work out in the world, I think it can feel like there's a lot of pressure to be constantly bearing our soul to create content mm. and engage with people, which can be really meaningful. But it also, I think, can, I suppose, transgress boundaries and make us feel like there's sort of nothing left for ourselves as individuals. Mm. So I think it's it's a really tricky, delicate balancing act and it's going to be different for every individual and will evolve over time. But for me, yeah, it's it's important to be vulnerable when it matters and where I feel like it will make an impact, but also recognise that I don't owe the world everything. And, you know, partic- particularly, you know, marginalised people where we're often expected to kind of sell the world our story and that's our ticket to becoming known, to kind of give our trauma porn over and, you know, in, mm. in response or in return we get readers or an audience. And... You know, we don't owe the world anything. Like we can we can keep our story to ourselves as much as we want. You know, being vulnerable is useful um, and can be really meaningful, but we don't owe the world our vulnerability. And we can actually put put a hard exterior up if we feel like that's what serves us at a particular moment in time. Mm. Eve, it has been such a pleasure and delight to talk to you. Your your book is so beautifully written as I said and provides so many different light bulb moments but in this very kind of poetic lyrical way which makes reading and the act of reading about other people's lives so enjoyable I've been so thrilled having you on the podcast this week and I could talk to you for a lot longer um and hopefully one day we'll be able to if we ever get back to you know socializing yeah, thank you so much for having me. And it's been an absolute um, delight. Um, you've asked wonderful questions. And oh, yeah, thanks. hope to hope to um, have a coffee or a drink in person one day when we finally get out of this lockdown. 
I would love that. The book is all about Eve, Notes from a Transition. It is out now. It's available in all good bookstores. Please, where you can, shop independent. And also don't forget that you can borrow books from the library and authors still receive um, a portion of payment for that. Um, so don't worry. I, I quite I have a lot of people sometimes write to me and say, what's the best way that I can buy your book so that you get the most out of it? But don't think about it like that. The best thing is just to read the book and tell other people to read the book. And, you know, if you need to borrow it from the library, then that's great too. Um, please do read it though. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful contribution, not just to the oeuvre of trans stories and narratives that celebrate trans lives, but also just the celebration of life in general, because they should not be um, considered as separate things. This story is equally as relevant to you, even if your experience is not a trans one. Eve, it's been an enormous pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. Big thanks to Acast, who are the best podcast hosts you could wish for. And if you enjoy the hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is allthews.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. And you might also consider rating and reviewing it because it's really nice to have the feedback. Don't forget, you can submit questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous. We're big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been Dr. Eve Rees, an historian, researcher, and now memoirist, author of the book All About Eve, a stunning journey through identity, transition, and what it means to live the questions of one's life. It is a joyful exploration of trans identity, celebration, and pride. And you can buy it from your local independent bookstore or borrow it from your local library. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. The Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.